from Coast to Coast to Coast, you're listening to Terra Informa. Welcome back to Terra Informa. I'm Charlotte Thompson, and I'll be your host for the next 30 minutes of environmental news from across Canada. This week, we'll be hearing co-authors Elizabeth Garrell and Sophia Osborne read their feature article entitled In the Grey that was published in the April 2019 edition of the University of Alberta's student magazine, The Gateway. In the Grey is a piece exploring climate change, the global oil market, and Albertans, and our complex relationships to the industry in the province. You might remember Elizabeth Garrell from an episode we aired in January, where we caught up with her after she spoke at the Pemida Institute's Youth Climate Summit. Elizabeth is an engineering student here at the University of Alberta, and is also a co-founder of the award-winning youth environmental awareness blog, The Green Medium. You might know Sophia Osborne as well, since she volunteers with us on Terra Informa. In February, Sophia shared her article about experiencing a windstorm of a record strength on Saturna Island that was published by the TAI, a Canadian independent online magazine. After the reading of the piece, I'll chat with Sophia and Elizabeth about the process of writing this piece, the research that went into it, and their thoughts on oil, climate change, and Alberta. So, without further ado, here are Elizabeth Garrell and Sophia Osborne reading their piece entitled In the Grey. In the Grey, Alberta's relationship with oil in a changing world. Morgan Simpson Marin, a fifth-year economics student, grew up in Calgary, a city built on the oil and gas industry. She says, I didn't actually really have an opinion on oil and gas before university. I knew roughly that if you burn fossil fuels, you get emissions, and I knew we somehow put oil into our cars, but I had very little understanding of all that. In 2016, Simpson Marin spent the summer interning at Whitehead Oil Company, and that's when her knowledge and feelings about oil grew. Through all her research for the company, she says she realized how much more we could all be doing on a personal, provincial, and federal level to reduce our carbon footprints. Since then, she has become involved with the University of Alberta's Center for Applied Business Research in Energy and the Environment and has spent time interning at an energy think tank. She's also doing a certificate in environmental and resource management. Simpson Marin can see the argument around oil from both sides. On the one hand, there are people who are concerned about the rapid rate of climate change, about findings in the newest report from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change that say if we minimize warming to the two-degree mark, we'll only lose the Persian Gulf, cause the extinction of the world's tropical reefs, and see over four meters of sea level rise. If we reach three degrees of warming, we can expect the flooding of most coastal cities and forests in the Arctic. Four degrees is predicted to bring desert across large sections of India, Bangladesh, and China, make the American Southwest uninhabitable, and cause permanent drought in large areas of Europe. The odds of reaching the Paris Agreement goals and keeping warming below 2 degrees Celsius are now 1 in 20. It's completely understandable that people want to avoid this level of global catastrophe. Many Albertans are scared about our contribution to the global rising temperatures, seeing it as not only something we should address and try to mitigate, but as our duty to do so. But Albertan identity seems inextricably linked to oil. So many jobs and so much prosperity has come from this industry. Even Edmonton's hockey team is named after it. If you think about it, your job is intrinsically a part of who you are, Simpson Marin says, 
It's what you've dedicated your life to doing, so it makes sense that there's a given loyalty to this product. This is something I felt and seen with my own family. My grandpa is a fisherman from Nova Scotia who was looking for a job to support his family. He found it in the oil industry in Alberta. He was one of the smartest people I knew. However, after starting to work on the ships at age of 16, he had minimal opportunities for higher education. Later, when I was telling my family about my engineering classes, my grandpa said he never thought anyone in his family would ever be able to study engineering. It was his hard work, his labor, that gave my mom and her sister the opportunity to go to university, and which paved the way for me to have the opportunities that I have had. In a 2018 survey, only 54% of Albertans said they believe climate change is caused by humans and industrial activity, compared to 70% across Canada as a whole. The rest of Albertans see it as a result of natural patterns in the Earth's environment, according to an ecofiscal Canadian survey. It is this very divide that makes both environmental and economic catastrophe at much higher of a risk of becoming a reality. Activists that deny climate change and try to stop climate change action have been, and likely will continue to be, effective at slowing down the necessary steps forward. Many of those who dismiss and devaluate the serious and scientifically backed up reality of climate change are those who worry most about the economic devastation that could emerge from the collapse of the industry. On the other end of the spectrum, I've heard many environmentalists deny our economic reliance on fossil fuels and the large impact losing the industry would have on our quality of life. This denial could lead to the economic and social burden being placed disproportionately onto workers and towns that are dependent on the industry. How do we in Alberta address both these catastrophes, maintain a dialogue, and make sure we distribute the burdens that we are facing in a fair way? In such a strongly divided issue, the solution often lies in the gray, not through inaction and dismissal of both issues, but rather genuinely accounting for the concerns of each party. Oil is a key part of the settler history of our province. Hereward Longley, a U of A PhD candidate specializing in the history of oil in Alberta, says the province formed, grew, and developed alongside the oil industry. Just nine years after Alberta became a province in 1905, natural gas was discovered in Turner Valley outside Calgary. Overnight, 500 oil companies were formed and drilling began bringing people to the province in droves, and providing an economic alternative to the hardships of homesteading in Alberta. The industry in Turner Valley fluctuated throughout the first half of the 1900s, but during that time, Imperial Oil was searching for alternatives. On February 13, 1947, everything changed. Oil was struck in Leduc. This led to further discoveries, and soon investments were flooding in, along with immigrants looking for work. Calgary and Edmonton emerged as major cities, and Alberta went from an agricultural province to one full of new opportunities. And then there are the oil sands. Humans had known about this resource forever. The Cree used the tar to waterproof their canoes, and explorers wrote about the heavy oil they would see floating on the rivers. But the oil sands weren't exploited until the 1960s, when the technology to extract the oil had finally been developed. This caused the industry to massively expand, bringing people to the province and causing population booms in Calgary and Edmonton, as well as the development of many small towns and cities around oil sands mining operations. Longley says it's become this incredible cornerstone of the economy that's completely transformed the number of people who live here and the way the political makeup of the province is formed. Many Albertans became dependent on the oil industry for employment, but it's also resulted in huge environmental change in northern Alberta. 
Many indigenous and Métis communities were left out of the prosperity and suffered the most environmental consequences. Oil is this complicated thing with all of these impacts on the environment and indigenous communities that all stem back from the beginning of the industry, Longley says. Alberta wouldn't be the province it is today without the jobs and opportunities that have come from oil. A job on oil and gas is no means the only way that a person can support themselves and their family, but many Albertans relate to this narrative. This is often painted as the economic argument for oil, but what is the economic reality for oil in Alberta? Simpson Moran says it's as much more tenuous than we think. In Alberta, we often hear people say that we have the best oil in the world, but that is just not true from a chemical perspective. The oil sands produce the most expensive oil with the highest emissions in the world. The bitumen can't be pumped out of the ground just like conventional oil. It has to be mined, requiring additional upgrading and refining making these processes more expensive. When we do get the oil out of the ground, it has to be pulled out from sludgy sand. On top of that, the oil we extract isn't necessarily high quality. It has high sulfur content, and for many applications, that sulfur needs to be removed and properly disposed of, an expensive process that raises the price of producing our oil even more. Being at the bottom of the barrel has its consequences. It is hard for us to be competitive in an international market unless the price of oil is high and the regulations are minimal. With anxiety around climate change and air pollution rising, there is a global push to diversify energy resources away from traditional fossil fuels. There are other global problems making the future of Albertan oil uncertain. The U.S. is our biggest export partner. In 2015, 97% of our oil went to them. But they became a net exporter of oil in 2018. Simpson Marin says, if you're cutting off your biggest market at the knees because they're able to supply their own needs, you've got a problem. And when we talk about issues like the Trans Mountain Pipeline expansion, the argument is often made that we need to get Albertan oil to other markets besides the U.S. But Simpson Marin says the thing that she finds interesting about that is no one took the time to see if other markets want our oil. She goes on to say, to put it in economic terms, our oil is not a perfect substitute for every other oil in the world. It sells at a discount. It's a crappy oil. For example, she can't find any public data to show that China has any capability to handle our oil. Another cause for concern is the International Marine Organization's new sulfur regulation that will take effect in 2020, requiring oil producers to reduce their sulfur content from 3.5% to 0.5%. This means more of Canada's exported oil will have to be processed to a higher degree, making it more expensive to produce and meaning over a third of the production of the Athabasca oil sands, the largest oil sands development in Alberta, will be unprofitable. In terms of the pragmatic view, when you present the fact that our oil is expensive to produce and can't get as high of a price, when you put it in dollar terms, I think that's when a lot of people start to realize that this is a more nuanced issue than what we're presented with by mainstream media and politicians, Simpson Marin says. It seems as though there are two emerging truths. First, that we won't be able to produce oil like we have in the past for much longer. And second, that a transition away from oil is a reality that we will have to face. While about half of Albertans deny the role humans play in climate change, that kind of disregard for science shouldn't be validated. How do we have a discussion based on these realities and help those who will be the most affected by this likely transition while still making the shifts that need to be made to address climate change? The idea of fairness seems to be at the root of our province's polarization. Lori Adkin, a political science professor who studies climate change policy, 
says much of the worry around moving away from oil is about how the costs of that divestment will be distributed fairly. For a long time, Canada has profited from Alberta's energy wealth and resources, but it can't reach emissions targets without cuts from Alberta, which accounts for 30% of Canada's emissions, despite having a population of only 4.3 million. This is 10% higher than emissions from Ontario, which has over triple the population. Because of this disparity, there needs to be federal support in having these conversations and setting goals to reach these targets. Adkin says we need to map out how to get to net zero carbon by 2050 and do so without putting extraordinary costs on any one part of the population. She says, My argument up until now has been that Alberta can't just be expected to make this transition without a sharing of the cost throughout the country. There needs to be some form of transfer of resources and income to Alberta to help Alberta make this transition, which is a transition in the interests of the whole country. Adkin has been following climate policy since the 1990s and has often heard the argument that, as an energy-producing country that wants to be competitive, Canada shouldn't have ambitious targets. Because of this logic, she says, Canada hasn't been doing its fair share. She says, everyone thinks somebody else is going to do the hard part, so nobody does anything, and we end up with the situation we're in now, where the world is not meeting the targets that are necessary. When it comes to climate change, energy, and adaptation, it's important for the government to take a leadership role and engage with citizens in a meaningful way, Adkin adds. Instead of having experts tell the public what to do, a bottom-up discussion needs to be had that includes all people in Alberta. But politically, this sort of discussion isn't happening. Jason Kenney, the leader of Alberta's United Conservative Party, is running his provincial election campaign on a central goal of dismantling the carbon tax, one of the most effective tools that Alberta has implemented to combat both environmental and economic catastrophe. He's promising to bring jobs back to the fossil fuel industry, when in truth, the government has little control over the global reality of this issue. Conversely, the province's NDP has an extensive set of climate and economic diversification goals called the Climate Leadership Plan. But recently, they've fallen back on some of their commitments, delaying their cap on oil sands emissions and rolling back taxes on heavy emitters. Presumably, they felt they had to make these changes because of the backlash they received from Albertans and industry stakeholders. This may have been avoided if there had been more public consultation before implementing these policies. Adkins says, I think once people understand that this transition is necessary and that we're all in this together and that it's going to be fair, then they're more likely to accept it and more likely to support it. So what would it look like to make this transition? Tim Weiss, who splits his time as a researcher and professor between the faculties of business and engineering, says Alberta can diversify its energy systems and still be a leader in the industry, given our wealth of technical expertise and renewable resources, as well as our already energy-literate population. He says, if you put all these things together, I think we're pretty well positioned to be thinking about diversifying for the future. I don't think it's going to happen by accident, and if we don't make that deliberate choice, I don't think it's a given that it does happen. But I do think we're well positioned to see that future coming and to be ready for it. Weiss stresses that even with the most aggressive decarbonization strategies, we wouldn't be phasing out fossil fuels overnight. There's a window of opportunity to benefit from oil and gas as we transition away from it. But if we're still going to be developing the oil sands, he says, 
It needs to be done in the most cost-effective and environmentally friendly way possible, and profits from the oil sands need to be invested into diversifying the province's energy system. If we are going to mine fossil fuels somewhere in the world, Weiss says he'd like to see that happen in a jurisdiction that is taking that money and investing it into renewables or other technologies. He says, if we're going to be using this resource, how are we making sure that it's actually fueling the future? Alberta's identity is defined by oil. This mentality and history often leaves Albertans feeling a strange sort of guilt when critiquing the industry. How do we turn our back on the things that brought us to this point? How do we appreciate what we have while still acknowledging the realities of climate change? How do we handle the fear that this industry may not be able to do for us what it did for our parents and grandparents? The only way to combat both economic and environmental catastrophe is to open up an honest, fact-driven, and forward-thinking conversation about the industry within our province. When starting to have this conversation, it's important to understand where Alberta fits within the global energy market. Where we stand in the market is shaped by the kind of oil that we produce. Simpson Marin says, Oil is part of who we are, and that's irrefutable. It's been making money for a long time, and I think we've really developed this we're the hardworking Albertans mentality, and that's not necessarily a bad thing, but I think blindly supporting anything without knowing the facts is risk-inducing. Thank you to Elizabeth Garrell and Sophia Osborne for reading their piece in the gray. Uh, I'm joined in studio with them both here. So my first question for you is kind of what inspired you to write this piece and what kind of research went into the piece? So I was first inspired to write the piece um, after some research that I did with The Green Medium, um, a youth environmental blog in Alberta. And that was two and a half years ago. Um, the research I did was related to the oil industry in Alberta and it really, um, um, truth started to emerge that I thought weren't kind of public knowledge. Um, and about a year later, I reached out to Sophia and we've been kind of working on it ever since. We've had about a million, like way too long drafts because there's just so many things to say. And from there, we've cut it down and ended up with this piece. Yeah. And when Elizabeth came to me, she had done all this amazing research herself, but I thought there were also a lot of other people at the university too who have expertise in this area, not just professors, but also students. So um, Elizabeth did a lot of work uh, doing interviews for the piece as well. So I think there's a lot of different types of research um, as well as her own opinions that went into the piece. So we talk in the piece about an honest, fact-driven conversation. I'm wondering what you both think that looks like and if we've ever had them in the past. And are we even able to do these with the political climate we live in right now when some leaders running for office are spreading mis misinformation? I think that oftentimes this conversation moves away from the facts and into kind of more of an emotional realm and a personal realm, um, as discussed in the article. And I think that we need to accept that and go into that, have the scientific facts and have those at our discretion, but then also talk to what people are afraid of, what are people's concerns, um, because I think that that's equally as valid and a very important discussion to have. Um, and how are we going to protect the people who will be most affected by changes if they are made? And why do we need to make those changes? I think those are the kind of discussions that need to be had. So tying that into the idea of fairness that was talked about in the article, um, we see something like the carbon tax in which 40% of Albertans are actually getting rebates for, yet there's a really strong opposition to it in Alberta. So how can we communicate to the public that 
something such as the carbon tax kind of is fair. I mean, you're paying for what you what emissions that you're putting out into the environment. Yeah, this is kind of a tough thing to do because I think it's really hard to get a source of authority that people can stand behind and believe. So the people who are implementing the carbon tax, when they say it's fair and good, um, I think the people that are most skeptical and most afraid aren't going to listen to those people as sources of authority. Um, I know a lot of people within the Alberta industry have been showing support for the um, carbon tax, but I think that there needs to be a level further. They need to be talking about what it actually is with the people that they work with and really, really taking action to be behind this if this is something that they do, in fact, support. Um, I think it doesn't help that a lot of things that people see as, or sources that people see as authority, such as maybe more conservative um, government and government officials, are being anti against this and saying that it's not fair, it's not fair, it's not fair. Um, and I think a lot of times people go to their sources of authority rather than um, what the facts may be. Yeah, like unfortunately it's become this political football that that's being thrown back and forth uh, between parties in Alberta. And really I think that goes against what Elizabeth is talking about with the with an open and honest conversation that's not about, you know, who can use this for political clout or not. Why do you think that the fear evoked by climate change is for many much less real than the fear inspired by the thought of a shrinking economy. It's more abstract and far away. And also, we're going to be some of the last people affected by climate change. Yeah, plus um, Morgan in the article talks about how intrinsic people's livelihoods feel to, to them and to their, their identities. And so I think while climate change is sort of, like Elizabeth said, this abstract thing that um, you know, it's going to be affecting sort of humanity as a whole, whereas, um, you know, your your economic livelihood and your ability to support your family and those sorts of things, like those feel so personal and they feel real to people, I think. So it's it's understandable that people are so sensitive about it, but I wish that there was some way that we could make climate change seem as important and dire as it is. So when we're talking about the Trans Mountain Pipeline, which was mentioned in the article, um, kind of the main driver of that is to get oil to these Asian markets, which we've discovered might not actually exist. Uh, So it seems kind of economically flawed, yet both the UCP and the NDP promote this idea of a pipeline. So why do you think that is? And is it kind of true to say that we might not be able to get a good value on Alberta bitumen anywhere? It's definitely complicated. Um, I know one thing that we kind of didn't quite discuss in the article because it's kind of complicated and gray as well is that there's also markets in India as well and kind of other parts of the world that that pipeline might serve. So there might be that market there. But when you're talking specifically about China, um, right now Russia has prioritized China in terms of giving it its best oil, its most conventional, unprocessed oil. So there's been times when there was kind of drops in the market and oil was always put to China over Europe from Russia. Um, So China has never put in the financial resources necessary to actually build processing for heavy oil. So that's kind of what um, Morgan is talking about. She's talking about that there is no plans to process heavy oil, and she's seen no records of that, no plans to make those kind of plants. And 
it doesn't seem like Russia is going to, you know, lose that market or kind of fall back on that market. So she's kind of asking the question of, you know, are we really doing our research that is this something that's actually viable if we are planning to go strictly to Chinese markets? Yeah, and I think just politically in Alberta, it's it's political suicide to say anything against pipelines. And I think all parties know that. Um, and so even if they have, like, have realized these things that, I mean, Morgan realized, I think they know that, like, as we were talking about, like, oil pipelines, that's all part of Albertans' identities. If you go against that, that's breaking a very serious taboo in Alberta politics. And the political leaders aren't going to go ahead of the people. You know, they're supposed to support what the people want. And Albertans want to have jobs. (laughs) For sure. If nothing gets done, and finally, you know, this idea of going back to the booming oil industry is actually now being seen by the public as something that is unrealistic or unfeasible, like, how do you think Albertans are going to react to that? Mm. I'm kind of scared for that time, to be honest, for Alberta, um, just because I don't think we have very many options. And that was kind of one of the main drivers for me to write this article is how do we create discussions that can lead to actions that will keep us stronger, um, more resourceful, more um, broad in a way that we can support ourselves in a multitude of different ways. Um, Because our reliance on oil and gas, I think, makes us extremely vulnerable. And I think holding on to it with, like, dear life and kind of blindly holding on to it because it's something you care about could leave us vulnerable for the future. Yeah, I agree. It's, I'm, I'm not an Albertan. I'm from BC. And I think coming to Alberta, I've learned so much about how Albertans sort of view themselves as a as a province and like the role that they play in Canada, I mean, I think um, it's really important to Al- to Albertans to be seen as sort of the economic heart of the country. And I think it will be a huge uh, reality check to to realize that you know Alberta could be the next Newfoundland or something if if there's no real um, steps made to to take preventative measures and actually diversify the economy and figure what out what else Alberta is good at. I think the federal government also needs to help with that because um, they've been benefiting from Alberta for years and years and years and they need to be involved in supporting Alberta for a transition forward. So when we talk about Albertans identity being so linked to oil, how do you think we can kind of transition this identity so that people see renewables as like part of their identity and part of their cultural landscape. I'm not convinced that we'll replace oil and gas with renewables like fully. So I don't think renewables will ever quite become as much of the identity as oil and gas is just because I don't think it will be able to employ quite as many people. But I think a diverse approach to economy, we could support as many people and and thrive in the same way. But I think the way that we can move forward is acknowledging this as part of our past and having it kind of respect where we came from and respect that this was part of our who we were. And, you know, like I said in my article, this is who part of who I am. I wouldn't have had the opportunities that I have had without the oil and gas industry, well, at least without the kind of jobs that the oil and gas industry provided. So how do we respect that, but then also push the conversation forward and be okay with letting that part of our identity change and move forward and be dynamic? Sweet. Well... 
Thank you so much for Sweet. joining me here on Terra Informa. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> That's all the time we have for this week. Terra Informa is a production of CJSR 88.5 FM, located in Edmonton, Alberta, which is part of Treaty 6, the historical and present territory of Cree, Métis, Blackfoot, Dene, and many other First Peoples who continue to live and gather here and who continue to influence the stories we make and our understanding of the land around us. If you have any questions or comments, send us an email to terra at cjsr.com or tweet at Terra Informa. Thank you to all of our volunteers that contributed to this week's episode. Hannah Cunningham, Sophia Osborne, and Amanda Rooney. I've been your host, Charlotte Thomason. Thanks for tuning in, and I hope to catch you next week, right here on Terra Informa. <laughs>